to me, uh, just one of those things is it, that something you might be interested in knowing is that in the Hebrew Bible, uh, that it, we call that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Ruth does not follow the book of Judges. Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. And if you recall, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 31 is the very last chapter, and there's the iconic passage, Proverbs 31, 10 through to the end, 31, the, the Proverbs 31 woman. It is not by accident that in the earliest canon, that was the order to go from Proverbs to the book of Ruth. As we, and maybe that'll inspire you to read this afternoon, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, as a matter of context. As we make our way uh, through the study of Ruth this morning, we are at the seventh sermon in our series, which is just halfway, just over. It seems fitting, therefore, to summarize some of the major takeaways from the previous six sermons which cover chapter 1. Now, if that seems surprising that almost half our series could be spent on the first of four chapters, we need only consider the construction of this particular Hebrew narrative. Chapter 1 is a condensed series of events concentrating over 10 years of activities of the main characters. In the book of Ruth, if the book of Ruth were a play... Chapter 1 would be Act 1 with three scenes. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 combined would be Act 2 and its various scenes with an epilogue at the end. The scenes of Act 1 are broken down for us in most English Bibles, which might be described as life and death in Moab. Return to Bethlehem, bitterness and barley. In Bethlehem. From chapter 1, you'll recall that Naomi, a name that means be pleasant or lovely in Hebrew, and her husband, Elimelech, a name that translates literally as my God is king, take it upon themselves to leave the land of promise which God had given to them and all the nation of Israel for the express purpose of being God's chosen people for the express purpose of demonstrating to all the other nations that he and no other is God. Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons reverse the direction that Joshua and the nation took some 150 to 200 years earlier, trying to find a way to escape the hardship of God's discipline of his people, that of a famine, and cross back over the river of Jordan and settle in Moab. Moab, you'll recall, was a nation born from the incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew, Lot, and Lot's older daughter, it, uh, it was a nation that would not allow God's people under Moses' leadership safe passage to the promised land. A nation that had conspired with Balaam, the false prophet, 
to try to thwart God's plan by speaking out against God's people. A nation so dishonored by the Lord that the law of God forbade any Moabite for entering the congregation of the Lord, even to the 10th generation, which many scholars take as a figurative way of saying never. Then God brings calamity upon Naomi. Elimelech, her husband, dies. And rather than returning with her two sons back to the land of promise and joining with her fellow Israelites in God's stated purpose for the nation, she chooses to remain in Moab, eventually giving her two sons in marriage to foreign women outside the covenant. And God brings charges against Naomi, or as the writer of the book of Ruth has Naomi say it, using a legal metaphor, the Lord has testified against me. Both her sons die. Naomi now is left with no visible means of support and the certain extinction of her family. At least her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, can go back to their mother's house possibly remarry and rebuild their Moabite lives, even have those children, especially sons, which Malhan and Kilion did not give them. Naomi, on the other hand, is bereft of the family she came to Moab with, left destitute, left completely empty, at least as far as she is able to see. As we proceed now into chapter 2, verses 3 through 17, we should consider how God might use the book of Ruth to speak to us some 3,000 years after its writing. It was certainly written at a particular time to a particular people and for a particular purpose, or more likely for several particular purposes. For example, there is a very strong argument made by scholars that its purpose was to help the nation of Israel be far more accepting of foreigners, especially those who embraced Yahweh, those who showed and practiced hesed toward Yahweh and his people. It was often the case, uh, let me back up here, no less than five times, In this small narrative, Ruth is called Ruth the Moabitess. She was certainly an ethnic outsider. It was often the case that the people of Israel pridefully used the Mosaic Covenant to fortify their nationalism, rebuff ethnic outsiders, and totally disregard the Abrahamic Covenant where God said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. Rather than explore this morning the multivalent purposes of authorial intent and, or divine intent, I've chosen to focus on only one of those purposes. God's purposeful sovereignty. Now I say purposeful sovereignty to emphasize that God's sovereignty is never without purpose. In every one of our lives on a daily basis, the unseen hand of God 
and unseen hand of God's providence never rests. Perhaps you would be encouraged to know that the one who certainly cares about you, you who are worth far more than the life of each sparrow that he sees fall to the ground, was up all night caring for you. According to Psalm 121.4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. One last thing to say before we read this morning's text. Compared to all the Hebrew narratives in the Old Testament, there are several unique elements that characterize the book of Ruth. It's different in several ways. One way in particular that I would like to point out that I have found especially useful in my own reading and understanding and appreciation for how this book applies to my own life that makes it especially relevant to all our lives some 3,000 years after it was written and read to common folk just like us is this. God is ever-present, but always in the background. Let me say that again. In the book of Ruth, as in my own life, I have learned God is ever-present, but always in the background. Nowhere in the book of Ruth does God speak directly to any of the people involved. Nowhere do we hear the voice of God through one of his prophets. Nowhere do we see the dramatic miracles of God like the plagues or the parting of the Red Sea in the days of Moses or like with Joshua at the walls of Jericho or like Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. We don't even get so much as the interpretation of a dream. Instead, God is quietly behind the scenes, orchestrating the events of the book of Ruth, completely unknown to the people of the story at the time. We alone, by virtue of the narrator, the one who tells the story, and by God's Spirit allowing us to perceive, we alone are able to appreciate the thread of God's purposeful sovereignty woven from start to finish into the fabric of the 85 verses comprising the book of Ruth. It is my testimony to you this morning that as the lead character in the book of Chuck, neither am I able fully to appreciate the providence of God in my life at the time of that providence. I read somewhere recently that the providences of God are like Hebrew words. They can only be read properly backwards. Well, this has been an unusually long introduction for me prior to reading the sermon, reading the scripture for the sermon. My intent uh, by doing so is to set the table for you this morning, possibly giving you an enlarged perspective with which to appreciate this portion of the story of God in the lives of Ruth and Boaz. You may have noticed in this morning's order of worship that the title of the sermon is simply and unassumingly Ruth and Boaz. But the story is about our ever-present, gracious, loving God, who is not only the true author of the story 
of Ruth and Boaz, and indeed the book of Ruth, but it was also the true author of your story. Pray with me, please. Lord, I pray that as we now proceed into your word, that you would open our minds and enlighten them, soften our hearts. Pray, Lord, that you would make the applications necessary. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So because of the unusual length of the introduction to this morning's sermon, I've decided to take the unusual tack of slowly walking through our text instead of reading it straight through from start to finish. There's a lot to be said for reading slowly this way, deliberately focusing, gathering as we go, if you will. Perhaps this section of the book of Ruth especially warrants such an approach as it too will be about gathering. As we begin, let us continue to remind ourselves. The book of Ruth is the story of an ordinary family and the ordinary means through which God providentially brings about or extraordinary results. Ruth 2, verse 3. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Here the narrator, knowing full well the entire story he's engaged in writing, making the point at the very end of the story that all of these events culminated in the birth of King David, says to us here with an ironic wink in his eye that Ruth just happened to end up in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Remember... The book of Ruth is the story of an ordinary family and the ordinary means through which God providentially brings about extraordinary results. Verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Well, how about that? And he said to the reapers or the harvesters, the Lord be with you. And they said, the Lord bless you. And behold, in other words, and what do you know? Or now at that very moment, aside from once again emphasizing God's invisible hand of providence, why do you suppose the writer put this entire verse in there? Remember, there's Boaz's greeting. Why do you suppose that? He wanted us to know immediately the character of Boaz. What Boaz said in greeting the harvesters was not a common greeting. The typical greeting then and even today in Israel is to bid someone well by saying, peace be with you, or just the word shalom, which is what that would mean. Or to ask something equivalent to, how's it going? If you're 
saying that to a male in, in Hebrew, you would say, Mashalomerk, or to a female, Mashalomcha. Literally translated, how is your peace? How's it going? Equally important to the narrator is that we see the godly character of Boaz infused in his community. It infused his community of workers as they responded to him. May the Lord bless you. So very unusual greeting had to be put there. That's why the narrator put it there. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? Or a more literal translation would be, to whom does this young woman belong? You probably know this already, but before Jesus came and liberated women from a very paternalistic culture, all proper women belonged to either their father or their, or their uh, husband. Paul further emphasized the liberation of women from this long-standing practice when he wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Galatians 3.28. Verse 6 and 7. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. You know, as much as the book of Ruth is about God's hidden providences using ordinary means in the lives of ordinary people like you and me to bring about extraordinary results that they and we presently have no idea of. The book of Ruth is also about the life of Hesed. Hesed, the value-laden, full-bodied, complex Hebrew word that takes a combination of several English words to describe it. At its core is the concept of love. But more than love, there is also at the same time kindness in motion. All one thought. Kindness in motion. And more than kindness in motion, there is a covenantal commitment. And that is to say there is a deep-seated motivation beyond the individual and located in the heart of God. It is not of human origin, but is an attribute of God manifest throughout the Old Testament, referred to a variety of ways, but often as steadfast love, with its ultimate culmination by Father and Son at the cross enabled by the Holy Spirit in the lives of his children and referred to in countless ways by every New Testament writer. When Paul writes in Romans 8 that those whom God foreknew, he predest or those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul was saying that if you are in Christ, you have been predestined for a life of Hesed. 
as some of you might say, at the other end of the grace works spectrum, James writes, just 22 verses in from the beginning of his wonderful letter, be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Here in particular, and in various places within his story, the narrator holds up Ruth, and in a few more verses, Boaz as role models of living by Hesed. Dr. Robert Hubbard Jr. is a 1965 graduate of Wheaton College. He's a 1969 graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary, holds a PhD, and several accolades for his work as professor of Old Testament and especially his work on the book of Ruth. Here is a summary of his text on the life of Hesed found in his commentary on the book of Ruth. These are his words. I've summarized them for you. Let me reiterate at the outset of my reading these that those of us who are in Christ are called to a life of Hesed. Dr. Hubbard's words. The life of Hesed requires extraordinary commitment. First, Orpah, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, you know that, represents one who does the ordinary. By contrast, Ruth is the one who does the extraordinary, who does uh, the unexpected. Her commitment was to Naomi's people and God, even in the afterlife. Chapter 1, verse 17. Further, even in Bethlehem, and we'll see this in a couple weeks, she sought a marriage for Naomi's benefit. Second, and we'll see this in a few more weeks, the writer contrasted Boaz over against the unnamed kinsman. That's chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, who gladly passed on his duty to someone else when no economic advantage accrued to him. Israelite custom permitted it, but it is not hesed. Boaz far exceeded his fellow kinsmen and modeled the extraordinary demands of Hesed. Number two, such devotion also requires the taking of extraordinary risks. What courage Ruth showed. She risked ostracism, perhaps even physical abuse, on account of her gender, social status, race. The ultimate risk her nighttime visit to the threshing floor, which Patrick will unpack for us in a couple weeks. She could not foresee Boaz's reaction to such feminine forwardness, anger, embarrassment, awkwardness, acceptance. Nevertheless, much was to be gained. The survival of Naomi's family. So she took the risk. Boaz took some risks also. He could not anticipate the procedures at the gate, how they would go. Both did what Hesed demanded. Finally, now leaving the summary of Dr. Hubbard's writings and bringing us back to verses 6 and 7, Hesed requires that things be done in a godly way. The law of the land, said Ruth, had a right to glean in any field, but instead of being entitled, Ruth humbled herself 
and asked permission. How contrary to the prevailing attitude of today's culture of entitlement. As a fellow observer of culture, you would probably agree that in today's American culture, neither humility nor meekness is easily found. Even within the body of Christ, one is often disappointed by how mundane are the attitudes and aspirations of many who call themselves followers of Christ. On the contrary, see how Jesus, who did not even count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 6 through 7. Ruth practiced Hesed that day by doing what I believe Jesus would have done, even though by law she had the legal right to do it. I believe that if Jesus, if it had been Jesus instead of Ruth, in all humility, Jesus, with full knowledge of the law, nevertheless would have asked permission. Verses 8 and 9. Moving a little quicker now. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, or some translation might say, Now listen, my dear. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz speaks to Ruth in a tone of compassion. Perhaps he was several years older. A little more revealing and direct translation of verse 9 would be, take note of where the men are harvesting and follow behind the female workers. That really describes to you how it was done. The men used the tools, cut the barley. The women followed without any tools and gathered into bundles. So stay with the women behind. And I will tell the men to leave you alone. When you are thirsty, you may go to the water jars and drink some of the water the servants draw. Verse 10 through 12 here, I believe, is the heart of Boaz's Hesed. And reading closely, the narrator allows us to see Hesed as being at the same time giving and praying for God's blessing. Boaz, in the same sentence, both proclaims and requests because Boaz not only prays, but also acts at the time of his prayer. He is both petitioner and fulfillment. Let's read it together. Verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. 
the Lord repay you for what you have done, and full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. As a genuine man of God, Boaz answers Ruth's question. Ruth asks, essentially, why are you so kind and attentive to me? And then Boaz tells her, but he makes clear that it's not simply because he's impressed with Ruth, but that what comes to her by his hand originates from the hand of the Lord. Boaz wants Ruth to know that it's the Lord that has motivated him to such kindness, that he, Boaz, prays for continued and even greater kindness from God, from the God from whom he has received such kindness. This is the heart of Hesed, because this is the heart of God. Jesus said, when you do your giving, do not even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your gift may be in secret. In other words, don't look for praise and honor when you bestow some kindness. Jesus said, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 3 through 4. Boaz, in his single proclamation slash petition before Ruth, leaves no room for Ruth to give Boaz any credit. But let us not overlook the deeper reason for the hesed of God flowing through Boaz. Look again. At verse 12, verse 12, I have to find it there. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is the biggest, most justifying reason of all for experiencing the Hesed of God. In the Old Testament, and brought fully to light in the New, is that to receive God's ultimate reward, that is, to be able to come into the presence of God on earth and be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity, we must... And we can only take refuge in him. There are no good works sufficient to bridge the gap between anyone and the holiness of God. Our only hope of being justified before the perfect and righteous God is that we humbly seek refuge from him. By finding refuge with him. The ultimate hesed of God is not available for those who try to earn it. Nor especially for those who trust in themselves. And proudly think that they have earned it. Here's what Luke 18, 19 through 14. Uh, 9 through 14 
has to say about that. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I tithe on all that I get. But the tax collector, standing off far, not even lifting his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verses 13 through 17. These remaining verses show even further Boaz's compassion for Ruth, the Moabite, and her mother-in-law, the Jew. Remember, Boaz has just said that he has received a full report of all that she has done, implying that he knows full well to whom and for whom she has done it. Verses 13 through 17, our final concluding passage. Then Ruth said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the harvesters, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Don't embarrass her. Don't tell her she can't do it. Leave her alone. And also, also pull out some from the bundles, the stuff that's already been gathered for her and leave it for her to be able to pick it up and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. That is to say, if you do the math, it was about 30 pounds of barley. So to capture it all, What does our review of chapter 1 and our walk through this portion of chapter 2 really mean in a way that's directly applicable to you and me? Remember that we said at the start that one of the purposes for the book of Ruth then and now is to demonstrate the purposeful sovereignty of God. Naomi went to Moab to find a better life and it didn't work. But it all worked out. She thought she was returning to Bethlehem empty because she couldn't see what God had given her in the life of Ruth.
When I was four and a half, my father abandoned me. My mother and I went to live with my mother's parents. When I was six, my mother abandoned me, and I was left with her parents to raise me. One night, my mother returned, as she did from time to time, occasionally to take up residence with her parents. Often, there was a lot of drinking and yelling and fighting and threatening. On this particular night, I was seven years old. The fighting and yelling was as loud and threatening as it had ever been, and I took myself off to bed. Somehow, I was able to doze off, and in that ethereal place between consciousness and being asleep, I heard a gunshot. It was, in fact, the sound of my mother pulling the trigger of my grandfather's 410 shotgun. I was terrified. I had no idea at the time who just got shot. So my father abandoned me and I never saw him again. My mother abandoned me, leaving me with her parents. And it didn't work. But it all worked out. Miraculously, I came to know the Lord. In vacation Bible school at age 10. Because my home life was less than ideal... School and church and all my friends became my family. As a result, when I graduated high school, I was president of the student council, president of the band. I graduated with honors and with a full ride to the college of my choice. And I could tell you a lot more that's in the book of Chuck about God's invisible hand of providence in the life of a very ordinary person. And God's using very ordinary means to providentially provide and extraordinary results. The disciples left everything to follow Jesus. They walked with him everywhere, witnessing miracle after miracle. They listened to teaching like none they had ever heard that had ever been. Then one night, worse than any terrifying gunshot, events spun completely out of control. The one for whom they had given up everything, the one to whom they had given their lives, and in whom they had placed all their trust and all their hope for the future, was captured, beaten, tortured, led outside the city, and executed That Friday, they were terrified, bereft of everything they had come to believe, left destitute, dismayed, distraught. Their lives had been destroyed because it didn't work. But on Sunday, it all worked out. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we We thank you that you are ever present in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for forgetting, for doubting, for ignoring. Lord, I pray for my dear friends here today, all who are here for some reason by appointment, to have heard your word. I pray that those of us who in any way are anxious about the future, dreading what will happen, not knowing. 
Lord, I pray that you would, even miraculously, lift us to a place where we can indeed see and feel your great faithfulness to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.